I've been trying to think hard about what grace feels like. Like uh, right here, right now, in the experience of grace, what does it feel like? What's uh, how can I how can I register its, its presence? What will be different about it than uh, an experience of the world that doesn't involve grace? And I've started to think about it recently in terms of uh, in terms of the feeling of necessity. That what grace feels like in the moment, what grace feels like here and now is is it feels like the necessity of how things are, right? It doesn't feel like my wishes or fantasies about how I want things to be or my regrets about how I wish they weren't. It feels like the necessity of what things are. It feels like the necessity of my being who and what I am at this moment, regardless of how I got here, in all of its goodness, however shortcoming, you know, whatever kind of shortcomings that goodness has, uh, and the necessity then of what must be done. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I'm pleased to welcome back into these hallowed walls. I don't know if they're hallowed. I I should actually look up what that means to make sure that I'm not being blasphemous right now. Uh, Adam S. Miller, he was on episode 278 of The Cultural Hall. Uh, those of you that are Patreon saints can access that old episode pretty easy. Those of you who aren't, well, you can Google search it like I did to remember which number he was on before. Welcome back, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, when we had you on before, uh, we talked uh, all about, well, first of all, you to get an idea of who you were. Um, then we talked about uh, a little bit of the philosophy in the LDS church. You're, you're beginning with your first books that were not necessarily LDS oriented. And now you're back because you have uh, a new book out with Deseret Book that's called Original Grace. And I, I'm going to throw this out here. I didn't realize how clever the title of that book was <laughs> just, just on the nose. I, yeah. I'm not dim. I'm not dumb. I, but, but I, I, it took me, I, I'm embarrassed to say how long before I went, Oh, original grace, like original sin. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> so, yeah. so hopefully in our time today, we can talk a lot about grace and uh, a reframing. Uh, let me ask you this though, just to to kind of start off this whole discussion, probably about four, five, six years since we visited with you last, as you look back, back over at the last four, five, six years, what is new for you aside from, from this book and this furthering the discussion of grace? New for me, I think, uh, is primarily that I'm getting old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had, uh, I've had a kid graduate from college and uh, a second graduate from high school who's headed to college uh, on Friday and just one left uh, in the barn here for two years. And yeah. uh, is, yeah, that so, is that something that you're looking forward to or is that something that you're like, oh, now it's a reinvention of person and self and, you're, and you don't know what that's going to be like? A bit of both, I think. I mean, uh, I love those kids. Uh, they've turned out pretty well, I think, and uh, it's always bittersweet to usher them out into the world and let them go do their thing. But uh, you know, uh, I still like my wife quite a bit, and I, I, I think uh, we'll enjoy we'll enjoy the time uh, with each other in a couple of years here when it's just the two of us. It's funny though. I've heard reflected more than a dozen times about how when the when that last kid finally leaves, and you know they feel like, okay, I don't know that I would have made all of the choices that my kids made, but you know they did a pretty good job. But then you look at each other and go, uh, I, I don't know. What do you want to do? Uh, I don't yeah. know. 
uh, kind of exciting. That'll be, it, I mean, maybe more books. Maybe you can co-author a book with your wife. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't plan your life for you. <laughs> well, let's not rule it out, but, uh, that, that particular, uh, eventuality is not very likely. I don't think. Oh no, no. She'll keep, she'll let the book writing to you and, and she'll take up other things. Yeah. She's happy to defer that particular responsibility. Uh, as we take the hard pivot, because I want to make sure we allow ourselves an, as enough time as we possibly can uh, about grace. Um, and, and and so, interestingly enough, um, I decided to start looking a little bit at some of the reviews for your book, because I think mm. that that can be pretty telling. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read any of them, um, but I think this will sort of cue up the conversation that we'll have today. Um, and this, this is one, um, he says, and this is James, I should, I should, uh, cite, I don't think it's, uh, from the Bible, James. I think it's a different James, but <laughs> don't quote me. I'm not positive on that. Well, uh, if, it was, if it was John, we couldn't rule it out, but yeah. James, we probably can't. <laughs> Uh, he says, uh, I've read several of his previous books and I think each, I think I like each better than the last, but this one gives an exceptionally good account of grace, urging us to give up the logic of original sin, which we often implicitly accept. Even we, if, even if we explicitly reject the doctrine in favor of the logic of God's original grace. Our relation to the Father is not one of guilt, but of restoration to his presence. This is a great book for Latter-day Saints. So I think I think I'd like to start there. We know the we know the terminology, uh, original sin, but I don't know where that isn't a, a necessarily a doctrine that is taught and retaught and preached and re-preached from our pulpits. Like original sin, what all does that encompass? Or when you say it, what are you saying? Yeah. So I think uh, traditionally uh, in Christianity, the doctrine of original sin is doing a couple different things. So on the one hand, the doctrine of original sin uh, is a name for the way that sin isn't just uh, an individual isn't isn't just composed of individual mistakes, right? That there's a kind of corporate, social, inherited dimension uh, to sin, right? There's a kind of structural uh, dimension to sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's uh, I think there's something true about that. But on the other hand, uh, the notion of of that of that inherited uh, sense of sin traditionally goes along with uh, a, of a particular sort of logic, right? Uh, about what good and evil looks like, about what justice looks like. And kind of the logic at the heart of the doctrine of original sin is the idea that suffering can be deserved, mm. right? Which is to say, the idea at the heart of original sin is the idea that it that it's moral, in fact, that justice requires us to return evil uh, in response to evil, such that if you've done something bad, something bad must be done back to you in return, and that that, in fact, is a kind of moral obligation. Now, we as Latter-day Saints uh, reject uh, explicitly the doctrine of original sin, but I think lots of times we, as, as the reviewer put it, lots of times we at least implicitly accept that underlying logic, that suffering can be deserved and that justice requires evil to be done in response to evil. Uh, but the thesis at the heart of the book is that that's not just a bad account of, uh, doesn't just lead to a bad account of grace, but it leads to a bad account of sin and I think probably even a worse account of justice. So then when we consider that, uh, though, uh, 
you know, maybe not something that we are knowingly doing or continuing to do intentionally. Like how, how can we, here you go. I'm going to ask you to solve thousands of years of this. Yeah, uh, yeah. How, how do we begin to look at this in a way that we don't feel like I've done bad. So of course, bad things, because saying it out loud like that is almost seems ridiculous to say it like that yet in our hearts. So many of us sort of believe that or have that underlying thought. How do we change that? Well, there is a kind of truth to it. Uh, because if I do bad things, right, then I will be bad, right? There's a kind of, I, I'm, I'm being bad. And there are kind of naturally bad consequences that, that follow from, from being a sinner. It's just a question of whether or not those naturally bad consequences are something that justice itself requires, right? That, that we have a kind of moral obligation to impose. And that's the point, I think, at which we probably want to part ways with traditional Christian thinking. Uh, and I, I suggest that we want, we probably want to think about our moral obligation here uh, as involving the necessity of responding to that suffering with whatever good is needed, rather than continually trying to weigh in light of what we think justice is, uh, what we think people deserve. That's another way, I think, to describe the underlying logic of original sin is that uh, it, it, the underlying logic of original sin assumes that justice turns on giving people what they deserve, in which case, if they've done evil, they deserve evil. But in which case, then we, have, we end up having a kind of nonsensical moral obligation to do evil to people. Uh, and God himself would end up having a kind of moral obligation to do evil to people, which doesn't doesn't just doesn't add up i don't think on the, on the face of it doesn't make a lot of sense uh yeah go ahead uh so uh so so walk this out a little bit maybe give me uh if if you're willing maybe a personal example or one that you that you have seen because I, I think conceptually i'm starting to get it again i'm the guy that it took me i won't say days but it was days to go ah original <laughs> grace now i get it now i get it again not dim but just maybe dim on this one give me give me an idea of you know, something that would transpire, something that someone would do, uh, and, and and how maybe um, traditional Christianity would look on it, how through the lens of, of this original grace we might look on it, and then and then why we would do that. What would the difference be by doing it that way? How why why does this matter? I guess. Yeah. So let me say let me say big picture wise, what's at stake here in thinking about grace uh, as being original rather than than sin being original. Uh, how we think about grace is going to depend on how we think about justice. Uh, and I suggest that if we're going to think about grace the right way, then we probably have to start with a model of justice that is pegged to the kind of thing Jesus himself describes in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Uh, so in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in Matthew 5, Jesus goes to great lengths to say, Look, I know you've heard all along that justice looks like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, evil in return for evil. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not how justice works, Jesus says. That's not the law. The law, in fact, requires you to not only love your friends, but the law, justice itself, requires you to love your enemies. And then he, Jesus says that's how God himself works, right? God causes his uh, rain to fall on the just and the unjust, right? He causes his, his sun to shine on the good and the, on the evil, and we're required to love our enemies in the same way. And that this isn't, on Jesus' account, that's not a description of mercy. 
That's a description of our moral obligation. That's a description of justice itself, good for good and good for evil. That, I think, is also a pretty good description uh, of grace, Hmm. right? Grace is when you respond to everything, good or evil, with more good, right? With whatever good is needed. So, in that case, if we don't start with sin, but if we start with a notion of justice that's grounded in grace, then we don't end up thinking about grace as a kind of exception to the rule of justice. We end up thinking about grace as a description of justice, right? Grace Hmm. is the thing that justice itself is, is aiming at. And a good example of this, I think, is something like, uh, this is not a a very personal example, but it's a familiar example. It's something like uh, the story in John about the woman who is uh, taken in adultery, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And they bring her to Jesus. uh, And they, uh, according to the law of Moses, right, she ought to be stoned. She ought to be killed in response. Uh, She ought to be punished, right, in this sense, uh, in response for what she's done, evil for evil. Uh, but that's not how Jesus. That's not how Jesus does it, right? Jesus doesn't use his law to decide what she deserves in light of what she's done. Jesus uses his law to decide what good she needs in light of what she's done. Uh, and Jesus responds here by number one, forgiving her, and then number two, commanding her to to sin no more, right? To to reform, to change, to repent, uh, because that's what she needed. Right? That's what she needed in order to become good. Uh, and at the end of the day, the, the, the job of justice is to make the world just, to make everyone and everything good. And the only way to do that is to always respond to everything, good or evil, with more good. That is to say, with, with grace. The, is there the other side of this, too, um, where like when we do good, we deserve good, sort of that prosperity uh, expectation that that sort of sullies this whole conversation as well? Good, yeah. But that's the flip side of the problem. Uh, on the one hand, when we think about justice in terms of what's deserved, then we end up thinking that suffering can be deserved, right? That we can deserve evil things, that we can deserve our suffering. And that's morally problematic, I think. But on the other hand, it's also morally problematic to go around thinking that we can deserve things that are good as a result of having done things that are good. Yeah, and you end up with a kind of prosperity gospel uh, understanding of of justice and God's law uh, that caches itself not just caches itself out not just in terms of like uh, material advancement, but also you can get kind of more rarefied spiritual versions, right, of the prosperity gospel that just look like saving yourself with your own works right because uh, uh salvation is something that then uh not only you can deserve but you must figure out how to deserve it yeah as if by, god didn't want to do the right you. exact things oh boy if i can get that checklist adam if i can i'm too i'm too away and then i got celestial bingo yeah both both of those i think are morally problematic thinking that you can deserve evil and thinking that you can deserve good I want to take a break real quick. When we come back, I, I want to maybe reset the table. I want to, and I want to talk just really about grace, about uh, about where where we believe in grace. How how um, I think taking a, another uh, stab at how other Christian faiths believe in grace, where they are the same, where they're different, and 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 maybe come at this again in a different way as we talk uh, about grace, original grace. See, it's a plan. Oh, forget it. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall. 
bestdjinutah.com. That is the website if you would like to hire me to come and to be at your event. Now, uh, I've done weddings and uh, family reunions, and I've had the opportunity to gather with folks just uh, for a party. I have yet to do a funeral, uh, and so I I don't want to say it with such exuberance, but I'm willing to play the music at a funeral, and I know that some people have really started to turn uh, the passing of someone into a party. Not that we're celebrating that they're gone. No, that's not what I'm saying. Take that back. Come on, Richie. I'm just saying the opportunity to be able to gather and celebrate the life of an individual. This suddenly got really dark, and I didn't mean it to. The point is, if uh, you have an event, an activity that you need music to be played for, why not considering consider rather hiring me uh, you go to best dj in utah.com hey friends dan the laptop man from pc laptops as you know there's been a huge video card shortage for computers we have tons of nvidia and amd video cards right now available with complete systems check us out right now at pclaptops.com here in the second block of the cultural hall remember you can always send us an email if you have great guest suggestions you've been reading a book uh, and you're thinking, man, th- this author, you, you've got to have this person in, have a little chat about this. Uh, it's contact at theculturalhall.com. You can send us those emails anytime, day or night. Wake up in the middle of the night, get up really early, have yourself a good breakfast. Then you send the email whenever you want. Contact at theculturalhall.com. So uh, I think this is a, a conversation that we are getting better about having. Not original grace, but grace in general. I think uh, for for a good long time, um, Grace was those other Christian folks, you know, we believed far more in kind of that pioneer heritage of like what we were talking about before we took the break is we do this and then this, and then if we do this and then there's this, and then we go back to Jesus cause we worked our way there. Right. Uh, in the time that you've studied and written and lectured on grace, what do you see the biggest change in understanding to be? Well, on the one hand, I think as Latter-day Saints, uh, we've always strongly, deeply believed uh, that grace was central to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because because it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, though for a long, long time, I don't think uh, grace was our first choice in terms of a word to describe it, right? Especially because it seemed like uh, a word that belonged to, to Protestants, right? It seemed like a way that we could differentiate ourselves mm-hmm. from Protestantism by by not using the word very much. But but I think it's clear that as Latter-day Saints, we've always believed that love and selfless service uh, were at the heart of the gospel. And that was the whole purpose of the law. And that at the end of the day, the only way to be saved and fulfill God's law uh, was to love uh, and to love in a way that was selfless and, and unconcerned with reward. Do you think that there's power then within the transition of using the word grace, if not for anything else than to, you know, liken ourselves to other Christian denominations, but is there power in using that word grace? I think really, I think grace is a really useful, really powerful word, uh, especially because it's the word that the New Testament, uh, especially Paul uses to describe the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kind of change that it brings about and the way that it shifts our relationship to God and our understanding of his law. So I think it's really useful in that sense, I, I, I mostly buy, I think, Stephen Robinson's argument 
that the word grace started to come back into our vocabulary as Latter-day Saints in the mid-80s and the early 90s, mm-hmm. precisely as a result of the fact that President Benson insisted that we go back and seriously read the Book of Mormon, right? That as Latter-day Saints, we have to take the Book of Mormon seriously, we have to read it, we have to understand it, uh, and that it was a kind of direct result uh, of our commitment as a tradition to rereading the Book of Mormon. Uh, that we ended up recovering the word grace for ourselves in many respects because it's it's a Book of Mormon word, right? It's it's central to the Book of Mormon's own description of the gospel, and I think that was that was for us a big part of our reawakening to the usefulness of that word to describe what's uh, what's going on when we start a new life in Christ and uh, leave our old life as sinners. If I can describe it this way, and I don't mean any sort of irreverence, but uh, like grace is your jam. Like if there is if there is one guy who like I really feel like um, is sharing the message of grace. I mean, even beyond this book. Right. But but in a lot of the writings that you have have uh, published and shared and all of those things, there's this 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 message of grace, this hope of grace, this inspiration of grace really is is something that that I think. is very apparent in in what you do. My question to you is this: How come? Like, where wh- where did you lock into this grace? I mean, obviously, all of us need it, and if that's all the answer is, that's fine. But w- why did it become such a personal thing to you, and what continues to drive that? Yeah. So on the one hand, it's just it's just been part of my own attempt to understand what it means to be a Christian and and live a Christian life. On the other hand, I'm I'm a philosopher by profession. Uh, I'm a philosophy professor. I specialize in philosophy of religion, and uh, and the the topic in philosophy of religion that I've that I've dedicated my professional life to is the topic of grace. Uh, this is the fourth book uh, I've written with the word grace in the title, not counting my doctoral dissertation. <laughs> uh, two of those two of those books were academic books, right? Written for non-Latter-day Saints in a very scholarly vein, uh, and two of those books uh, written for Latter-day Saints. But what I've kind of been pushing for all along, I think, over the past 20 years is I've been, I've been trying to, I've been looking for ways to articulate what grace is uh, that, that would be kind of native and original to the restoration itself. Right. What what would it mean to talk about grace in the context of the restoration that wouldn't just be a kind of miming uh, of the way that Protestants talk about grace? What's what what would be a native, natural, original way for Latter-day Saints to do it? Uh, And that's part of what I'm after then in this book is by by sharply distinguishing uh, a doctrine of original grace from a doctrine of original sin. I was looking for a way to, to talk about grace, not as a robust exception to the demands of the law, which I think is what we what we get in Protestantism, mm-hmm. uh, but as the very thing that the law itself demands, which I think is a very a very natural but also original way for Latter Day Saints to talk about it. Do you ever encounter um, those who sort of reject grace? I feel like I've been a part of Sunday school lessons, and uh, and I think really, I mean, big picture when you when you if you're able to walk those things out with them that they go, Oh no, of course that there's grace, but just the idea of grace or, Oh, well, sure. If you can't hack it, there's grace for you, Adam. 
when we when we encounter those that maybe don't understand the the subject of grace or or those that would push against grace like how how do we have that conversation yeah so i think there are two kinds of pushback that you can get there one is just with with respect to the use of that particular word grace uh, you know and in that sense at the end of the day i'm i'm not I'm not married to it, and we can we have you know we've gotten we've gotten along without it in many ways, and we can it's in four the of the thing. titles of your books, though, Adam, <laughs> without that word, where no, I'm just teasing true, yeah, but you know uh i've I've never had any illusions about uh, how useful philosophy is for for most people most of the time, right? it's a uh, it's a special thing uh, for a special sort of person that's interested in <laughs> in doing that kind of work. Uh, and there are lots of ways that we can talk about what's at stake. Uh, in grace without using that word. And in lots of ways, I think, uh, and I'm, this book bears it out, uh, I think we as Latter-day Saints should be suspicious about how traditional Protestantism uh, and even Catholicism use the word grace, right? Especially in connection with the doctrine of original sin. Let's walk that out a little bit. I, I want to talk a little bit more about the suspicious. I think that that is an intriguing word where people go, wait, what does he mean? Let's, what do you mean by that? Well, it has it has to do, I think, with the with the second part of my answer to your previous question, is that as best I can tell, what it means to be a sinner is to be someone who rejects God's grace, right? What it means to be a sinner is to is to be someone who rejects God's original offer of grace, of partnership, uh, of enabling power. Uh, and of wanting it to do it, wanting to do it on our own, living our lives on our own terms without God, right? That very attempt to do it without God, to find happiness or to find even our own salvation for God or with God, without God, uh, I think is at the heart of what it means to be a sinner, that kind of that kind of prideful rejection uh, of God's offer of, of partnership. That's at the root of what it means to be a sinner. And so that can take, I think, a bunch of different forms, right? It can take forms that we as Latter-day Saints are pretty familiar with, perhaps as we try to save ourselves without God's help, perhaps as we think to ourselves that what God wants is for us to save ourselves without his help, uh, as if God didn't want to be part of our lives, right? As if as if his partnership and presence and, and a relationship with him weren't the very substance of the thing that we were looking for in the first place. Uh, but it also can, you know, it also plays out, I think, in traditional terms. Uh, and various ways for Protestants and Catholics as well. Because, you know, as, as sinners, all of us, it's natural for us to think about the world in this upside-down, backwards way, uh, and then to, uh, you know, get the relationship between sin and grace also upside-down and backwards. You know, in a, in a world where we talk a lot about, like, um, shame and guilt, go with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get here, Adam. Are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. where, where we talk about... Um, Shame and guilt, and 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 as I understand it, it's you know I I'm I'm a bad person because I did this thing, right? I'm a sinner because whatever the thing is, because I did this particular action that makes me a sinner, and then I feel shame, and then we're likely, uh, you know, mental health professionals would tell us that because we feel bad about that, that then we cope with it, and we typically would cope with that by doing something else that would be bad, and we kind of spiral ourselves that way instead of saying I am a good person who have made this particular bad choice. This reframing of grace and recognizing it as, you know, what sinning is is rejecting God's grace, not you doing a bad thing or 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 choosing a 
and I'm air quoting for people who can't see a wrong choice. I mean, that that seems to allow us a, a, a much uh, what's I don't want to say lighter or easier, but it seems to frame it in a way that we can really attach ourselves to. We are all children of a heavenly father or of heavenly parents who love us so very much. And sometimes we can make poor choices, but we always have that innate value as who we are. Yeah, yeah. It's always a question here uh, of how we're using God's law, right? Whether or not we're using God's law to judge ourselves in the world around in the world around us in terms of what we think is deserved, in terms of what we think we deserve or what other people deserve, which I think is a sinful way of using the law, right? Because then mm-hmm. we end up deciding that sometimes people deserve what's good, but sometimes people deserve what's evil, and then we also end up deciding that sometimes we deserve what's evil. And that maybe God himself is insisting that we get what's evil, as if God were in the business of doing evil and insisting on evil. Uh, and a lot of times that, that takes a very specific form in terms of a feeling of guilt or shame, right? Mm-hmm. That sense, that judgment about ourselves that we must deserve what's evil because we had done what's evil. Uh, that's, not how, that's not how God works, uh, yeah. as best I can tell. That's not how Jesus describes how God works. Uh, Jesus, of course, insists that God's law be fulfilled and that we obey the law and keep the law. But the question is always then, what is the purpose of the law? What's the law after? And the law is after what's good. The law commands that we do what's good. It commands not just that I do what's good for other people, but it also even commands that I do what's good for myself. Now, if I've made if I've made mistakes as a sinner, right? If I've been angry or cheated or stolen or lied or whatever, then what the law is going to command uh, is that I do then what's good, not that I receive what's evil. Now, what of course is good for a liar is to stop being a liar because being a liar is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> it's a terrible experience to be a liar, right? Being a liar is its own punishment in lots of ways. Wickedness never was happiness. Yeah. Uh, and what the law commands then, the good that I need as a liar is to stop lying, right? To, mm-hmm. to change, to be transformed uh, in light of uh, God's own law, in light of God's own love. And that may require certain sorts of discipline and difficult things uh, in order for me to undergo that sort of transformation. Uh, but the sort of discipline and, and change and transformation that's needed is not a punishment. That sort of thing uh, is itself a grace uh, that comes to save me and lift me and change me and transform me. It's not uh, it's not a punishment required by justice itself in response for the evil that I did. It's the good that the law insists on for me to be saved. Yeah, it feels it feels with that. Um, like as you were speaking, I, I feel I, you know this this uh, kind of overwhelming feeling of like that feels a lot more hopeful or like there there's um, like an an airiness or light as in the actual light. Like there is, you know, there there is something to that that way as opposed to just i'm so bad oh the punishment yeah i guess i deserve this well he got what was coming to him all these things that are within our our language that we say framing it that way i i absolutely love this i love this so much well it's uh you know put down the heavy burden right jesus says of of expecting that the law is about what you deserve and instead take up this very different sort of yoke right it is a yoke it is something you still must carry, the, the law, uh, but now it's the, the law in terms of uh, an apparatus for deciding what good 
is needed and and the character right the the whole character of the work is fundamentally transformed when i look around and constantly judge the world and myself in terms of what good is now needed rather than in terms of what is or isn't deserved and as best as i can tell uh, god and jesus are never in the business of deciding what anyone deserves mm-hmm. they are always and only in the business of using their law to decide what good now people need look, you put yourself in this spot. It's a difficult spot. It's a terrible spot. You did some terrible things. What do we have to do now? That's the only question that they ever ask. Not what do you deserve on the, not what you deserve on the basis of what you did in the past, but what must be done now on the basis of where you're at. Coming at this concept of grace, do you find for you personally that it allows you, not allows you, that's, that's a poor choice of words, Richie, that it, Mm -hmm. um, it lends to uh, being more loving and kind towards your fellow man, whether those be fellow congregants in your ward or otherwise that like, to me, I just feel this overwhelming paradigm shift of that. I look at it and go, Oh, Oh no, this feels different. And then I'm able to behave different because I can look at this differently. It feels very different. It feels liberating. It feels empowering, right. In exactly the ways that the, the New Testament itself describes, right? As when you undergo conversion, when you stop living under a law of works and instead live under the law of grace, right? Grace as law, then you are set free, right? Uh, and you begin this new life in Christ that has a very different quality, a very different character as you look at the whole world and uh, in a fundamentally different way. And it is, it's liberating and empowering uh, and it's hopeful uh, and, uh, you know, we don't have to carry all those, all those burdens that we thought we did, uh, because God has no interest in them. And when we accept God's point of view, we, we no longer have any interest in them anymore either. I want to take another break. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to ask you to get a little personal, Adam. We'll do that coming back in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember there is the Cultural Hall back row. That is a Facebook group, almost 300 people strong, hanging out and talking about uh, some of the tangential things that come up in each of these episodes. Uh, From anything from, you know... Listen, Adam lives in in Dallas, Texas, and people might go, have you ever been to this restaurant? And then they go on to, have you ever had a brisket taco? And we don't talk much about the episodes there, but we talk about these things that might come up because of that. Uh, it's the cultural hall back row. You do have to ask to be uh, a part of that group, but no, nope, it doesn't cost anything. It's just people that like this show hanging out together. Uh, we'll go light on you before I ask you the deep, harder questions. Have you ever had a brisket taco before, Adam? I was going to bring up the brisket tacos again if you didn't circle back around to it because uh, one of the true true pleasures and joys of living in Dallas is that specific combination of Texas barbecue and uh, Tex-Mex. And yep. uh, yeah, if you you better have one while you're here. 
It it is life changing. I had never had one. Went there a couple years ago during the pandemic. Someone said, "Here, this will make the pandemic go away." And sure enough, I ate that taco, and then we, you know, all the restrictions were lifted. There I'm not go. sure they're d- directly related, but they're pretty amazing. Um, all right, let's get personal, Adam. So you have studied this. You've written about it. I want to know how you were and how you are now and, and what the difference is and what the, that really means for you. So give me personal example or stories. I want to get to know you within your trans- transition from maybe how you used to look at Grace to how you look at it now and and what may- difference that has made to you. Yeah, Grace is not just a topic of professional interest to me right it's it's a topic of deeply personal interest it's it's an interest that grows out of my own attempt to both experience and describe what's at the heart of a christian experience of the world uh and so for me i have felt i think uh, a very clear very decisive shift uh, that's happened uh, in stages and is ongoing uh, I think over over the past 10, 20 years, as I have increasingly put down the burden uh, of attempting to prove that I deserve something, of reading my life in terms of what I do or don't deserve, in terms of reading my the people that I love, their lives in terms of what they do or don't deserve, in terms of, you know, seeing the world at large in terms of what it doesn't, does or doesn't deserve right it's closely connected i think to a willingness to see myself and other people with a fundamental kindness right to to take to see you know to uh to take into account and, and to see where other people are at what what good they have managed uh and then to see uh in that broader context what good they may still need it's connected to, I think, with with a willingness on my part to not uh, attempt to identify myself with the good things that I've done, mm-hmm. or with the good things that I haven't managed to do. Right. This uh, this experience of grace very much takes the shape of of a kind of uh, of an ability to suspend that continual fundamental gesture of uh, of identification and to just to just let it go. Right. To not to not identify if I've done something good, it's good. I don't, it's, it's not mine. I, I can't claim it. I can't own it. Mm-hmm. If I've done something bad, it's not about me being bad. It's about what good then needs to be done here and now as a, as a result. Uh, and that's, that's pretty liberating too. You know, we started the conversation in, in talking about, you know, almost being an empty nester. Um, and you know, the interaction that you have with your own kids. And then when you are able to reflect on the relationship that you had with your father um, and, and this idea of grace with the thought that this life is not only that time to prepare to meet God, but, you know, unique to mostly to LDS doctrine is the idea that one day we get the opportunity to do all these things, right? To have our own opportunity and 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 be able to create worlds right we're we're not going to go super deep down that but it, with with the unique perspective of of parenthood or child to your parent how has grace impacted or changed how you do or view those relationships yeah it's a nice way of describing it 
then our work as Christians, uh, especially as Latter-day Saints, is to take up the same work that God does. Right? On the one hand, to participate in that work of creation, especially in terms of uh, perhaps the opportunity to, to be parents, to, to give life in some way, to shape and create life for our children. Uh, but also, I think, uh, to participate in, in the fundamentally creative moral work that God does in terms of continually extending forgiveness, right? This, of course, is, is one basic form that grace takes, the work of continually forgiving. When we think about the law in terms of original sin, in terms of what people do or don't deserve, then we think that God's law is about being forgiven, right? Getting God to forgive us which is a kind of upside down and backwards way, I think, of thinking about mm -hmm. the law. It's not about getting God to forgive us. It's about our willingness or unwillingness to participate in the work of forgiving, right? That same work that God does. Because on the one hand, what, what the work of forgiveness looks like is forgiveness involves my uh, ability to appreciate things for what they are, right? To, to, to say, look, uh at your at your child and uh forgive them for not perhaps being what you wanted them to be uh, and instead then appreciating them for what good they actually are mm -hmm. uh which is you know going to be both better and different than maybe what you thought you wanted yeah uh and on the other hand you know forgiving them for for still needing from you what whatever good then it is that they still need uh, and then, you know, hoping for that in return for them, right? Hoping that they can see in you what good you managed, uh, even if it wasn't the good exactly that they needed. Uh, and hoping, too, that they can still respond to you with the good that you need uh, and forgive you for, for not being everything that, that they thought they wanted. And so that's, I mean, that's I think that's what God's work looks like, this kind of continual letting go uh of what we thought we wanted in light of the good that there is and in light of the the work of the good that's needed as you ponder on grace i mean 20 years most of your professional career whether it be academia or within um the writings for the latter day saint um you know culture church etc uh what do you still muse about grace that you're like i'm not sure i quite get that or what are the things is there any part of it that you're like you know, I'm I'm not really sure I have a grasp on or where I feel like maybe as a as a as a faith or as a tradition we really miss this and I'm going to invest some time in sussing this out. What like what what do you in in your absence of thought what do you muse about with grace? I feel like I'm just starting to get a little bit of traction <laughs> here in terms of in terms of how uh it might be useful to think about grace. I, the The subtitle of the book, uh, I think, is not inconsequential here, right? The title of the book is Original Grace, the new book, but the subtitle is uh, an experiment in restoration thinking, mm -hmm. right? Because it's a kind of it's a kind of preliminary gesture. Still, it feels like uh, to me uh, a collection of uh, of hard won suggestions. That the tradition may 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 consider taking on board in terms of useful ways of talking about grace and sin, but it feels very much to me like a kind of uh, an open-ended, unfinished project. Um, 
One thing for me recently is that I've I've begun to think about I've been trying to think hard about what grace feels like in the mm. moment, right? Like uh, right here, right now, in the experience of grace, what does it feel like? What's uh, how can I how can I register its its presence? What will what will, what will be different about it than uh, an experience of the world that doesn't involve grace? And I've started to think about it recently in terms of uh, in terms of the feeling of necessity. Hmm. that what grace feels like in the moment what grace feels like here and now is is it feels like the necessity of how things are right it doesn't feel like my wishes or fantasies about how i want things to be or my regrets about how i wish they weren't it hmm. feels like the necessity of what things are it feels like the necessity of my being who and what i am at this moment regardless of how i got here in all of its goodness however shortcoming you know whatever kind of shortcomings that goodness has uh and the necessity then of what must be done right Hmm. the the grace i think it feels it it feels like it shows up in the present moment as this feeling of necessity and i can perhaps feel most confident uh, about the fact that i'm in tune with god and with what god wants when i'm in tune with that sense of necessity things are what they are there's no changing that. I must appreciate them for what they are, and I must give whatever good they need. Uh, and if I'm in tune with that, then it feels like that I'm I'm uh, I'm vibrating on the correct frequency that allows grace itself to come into view and uh, equips me to both forgive and to act. That's that's a lot, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know, as you as you mentioned, these are the these are the, you know, the things that, that, you know, resonate with you in those moments where you're able to, to kind of think through and, and, and see where that is. I love the conversation that we've had uh, today. There are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. Mm -hmm. I asked them of you before, I believe, and I will ask them again, as we find uh, many times that these answers change. Um, the first question is, Is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I am the elders quorum instructor. Okay. Every week or every time that it's taught? Every other week when we yeah, meet yeah, as yeah. an elders quorum, yeah. Yeah. Good for you. We have like seven teachers in my ward. I don't understand <laughs> it. But like I, I, I've been in the ward a couple months and I've never had the same teacher. And I just, I'm like, is there this many people called? And turns out there is. If you uh, could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? I think I'd pick Elder Squarm Instructor. That's that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much what I'd want. I think that's a great calling. And, and what particular? Because I know a lot of people who like to teach. They also like Sunday school. Why particular Elder Squarm instead of say the larger group Sunday school? Yeah, I wouldn't have any objection to to teaching Sunday school. And in lots of ways, you know, Sunday school pegged as it is to particular passages of scripture has that has that advantage. But I also think there's something there's something really special and really rare uh in the world today about a group of men, right, sitting down together, collectively focused on on God and love and service, uh, that I find really sweet and really powerful and really redemptive and uh, that kind of brotherhood i i deeply treasure yeah well said last question we ask everyone uh ask you to interpret it however you may but the question remains what is your favorite part of your faith jesus 
I'm going to go with Jesus. Okay. All right. Anything particular? <laughs> or we just we just go in a good solid and everything that he stands for is brings to the table. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. I was I was just thinking this morning about about my son who's uh, headed off to college on Friday and uh uh you know thinking about a mission in a year and I was I was thinking, you know, what what I want for him to do over the course of the next year is to is to read and reread the New Testament, the Gospels, to read and reread the Gospels so that, you know, if the time arrives in a year and, and he heads out on a mission, that, that what's at the forefront of his mind is a kind of, of uh, a deep familiarity with Jesus himself. And uh, if there's any way to be a successful missionary, I think I think that's probably it. Yeah. Well, uh, Adam, I hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body. That if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week. And that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. If you want to get uh, the the book, Original Grace, An Experiment in Restoration Thinking, there will be a link in the show notes for this episode. Make sure that you click on it. And uh, you can also leave a review after you've read the book and and tell everyone how amazing it is. You can also tell our friends over at Deseret Book that you heard this interview and say, hey, Deseret Book. You should pay the cultural hall a little bit of money. Why not? Why don't you? Right? I don't know. You, I don't know that that will go anywhere with Deseret Book. Uh, but we hope that uh, it, uh, that we'll be saving a seat. Uh, wait, now I've even messed up how I end this episode. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Brother Brent, Miracles, I Told You So, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the culture hall show.